the best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all-new Talk Radio Freedom 106.5. Into agribusiness innovations with Mr. Jody White and his special guest. So let's head over to them. Good morning to you. Good morning, Trinidad and Tobago. Welcome to another installment of Agribusiness Innovation here on Freedom 106.5 FM. Tosca, we have a lovely show today. We have our guest here all the way from the University of California, and we're speaking about avocados. Now, the innovation in avocado is not something that people commonly think of, but it's something that is necessary, and it's a story that I believe is quite exceptional. So I brought our guest, Miss Mary Lou Arpaia, and I hope you correct me if I pronounced your name wrong. Thank you for being here with us. Uh, thank you, Jody. Uh, you did uh, say my name correctly, so thank you very much. <laughs> and I'm excited to talk to you about avocados. Avocados are one of my favorite fruits. <laughs> so, you know, tell our guests uh, a little bit more about yourself. Well, I am a native Californian. I grew up in California. My father uh, was actually a restaurant owner. And at their restaurant, he wanted always to have fresh fruits and vegetables. So from an early age, I was exposed to uh, uh, going down to the produce market with him. And I appreciate fresh fruit and market, uh, fresh fruit and vegetables. And my mother was really into plants. And so that segued actually when I went to college, a degree in botany when, as an undergraduate. And later I went to graduate school at UC Davis. And I um, specialized in uh, agriculture. And then when I finished my PhD, I worked on kiwi fruit when I was at Davis. And then I was very lucky that uh, when I was just finishing, I was able to get a position at the University of California Riverside campus, which is in Southern California. And I worked on citrus and avocados. From my, from those are the two main ones I've worked with. I've done a little bit of work on mangoes and other things, but really avocados and citrus for the last forty years. No, why avocados in particular? Why avocados in particular? Avocados is a really important um, fruit crop in California. It was introduced into California over a hundred years ago, in the eighteen forties, actually. And uh, but it didn't do too much. It was a backyard novelty crop. And then in about 100 years, a little bit over 100 years ago, people started paying attention to it as a potential commercial crop. So we've had a commercial industry in California since around 1912, 1910. And um, what was what would I say? Why? And it's just part of the California vibe, you know, along with surfing and and citrus and everything else, avocado is just part of the of the uh, the societal thread here in Southern California, at least. So I grew up. We had avocados in our backyard. We ate avocados all the time when I was growing up. Now, the health industry, the fitness industry, avocados is one of those things that they always recommend that people eat. Uh, why is that? Well, okay. First of all, I think it's a very versatile fruit. It is a fruit, not a vegetable. But it's very, very versatile. It goes with all kinds of different cuisines. It goes equally well with spicy Indian food as well as, you know, traditional Mexican-type food and everything in between. 
And so that's number one, it's very adaptable. The other thing I think is that it is really, really good for you. It is high in fatty acids and the main fatty acid in the fruit is oleic acid. And oleic acid is the one that makes olive oil good for you as well. So it's good for cooking. It's, um, it, it's just, you know, it's good for you from that perspective. It's also very high in uh, potassium and vitamin E and a lot and lutein. So it's really good for your eyesight. So overall, it's just a super healthy fruit for you to eat. And uh, people say it's fattening, but it's really not fattening because it has good fats. Now, joining us today on this program is also Mr. Eric Fote. Now, Eric, did I pronounce your name correctly? Uh, yeah, Fote. Fote, great. So, Eric, uh, now that you've joined with us, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, well, I've, I've worked uh, at UCR with uh, Dr. Mary Lopea since... 1999, so it's been quite a while. I, I started out uh, <clears throat> actually just sort of helping out in the lab, working and doing whatever needed to be done with a couple other people. And over the years, everyone else retired, and, and I was left behind and became <laughs> the uh, <laughs> became the um, the plant breeder in 2005, and um, sort of lab manager, de facto lab manager since then. And um, and currently, I'm in the middle of trying to write and finish my dissertation for my long-awaited PhD um, in plant breeding. But uh, basically, uh, I kind of work out in the fields a lot, uh, interact with a lot of the trees. We have a big germplasm collection that I'm adding to all the time and um, checking out. And uh, so this is something a little different every day. But uh, yeah. That's, that's I, I, I realize that avocados is, are, are also a big part of what you do. The photos I've seen with you are with some big bowls of, of guacamole. And so why why is avocado such an appealing product for you to work on? Um, well, I mean, for me, it's really versatile. I've always, uh, as far as fruits go as well, I'm, I'm more of a, a savory person than a sweet person. So um, I do appreciate guacamole and... Uh, uh, soups, um, you know, like cold soup, different salads and things like that. Um, but it's also just, I mean, it's its kind of a part of California. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, of course, my parents had like a lemon tree and an orange tree. But when we got our, our, our Fuerte avocado on the side of the house, that was kind of a game changer. And that's still there. So um, it's just something that's always been a part of for me growing up in California. Although when I was a little kid, I only liked it as guacamole and I didn't really appreciate the actual fruit as a whole until middle school or high school. Now, to our listeners, uh, our two guests uh, have been awarded one of Time's 200 groundbreaking innovations for the year 2023 for the new variety of avocado that has been released. So it's actually very, very major. That's a massive, massive, massive award to have won. So my question is, what is the danger or the risk with the current avocado species that we have and why the need to create something new? Well, I, I think a good analogy is cars. 
we're not driving Model T Fords anymore. We're driving self-driving cars, if you can afford a self-driving car. We're driving cars that have a lot more safety features, right? So the car, cars have evolved. And fruit, fruit and vegetable varieties are ever-changing as well. And, uh, you know, the world do is dominated by the house avocado. It's a wonderful fruit. Don't get me wrong. It's a wonderful fruit, but it has uh, weaknesses to the, for the farmer. You know, it, it doesn't like high salt. If you have a uh, salt water intrusion, uh, it doesn't tolerate high salt. It's uh, susceptible to certain pests and diseases. And so we always need to be looking for something that's improved that in the tree is a massive tree and with the cost of agriculture and production and labor these days, we need to have something that's a little bit more efficient so that uh, the grower has lower inputs into uh, growing the, the variety. So there's a lot of different reasons, but the Hass avocado, which is a dominant variety worldwide, I know that in the Caribbean you grow West Indian varieties more or the Antilles varieties, and that's very different again from the Luna, which Luna UCR, which is the one that was awarded this distinction by Time Magazine. The Luna UCR is a um, great granddaughter of Haas, actually, and uh, it, it retains some of the characteristics of Haas, mainly that it turns black when it ripens. It has a little bit of thicker peel, easy to peel. But, you know, you always need to be improving things. You, it, you, we should keep the old. Don't forget, don't get me wrong. We need to keep the old and treasure the old and have germplasm collections. And Eric alluded to that, that we have a large germplasm collection, mainly of old varieties, because you never know when you have to dip into those if you have some kind of environmental challenge that, that your current variety can't handle. So uh, it's to good to keep the old, but you need to be looking forward all the time, too. To our listeners, the Haas avocado is the ones that we may see abroad in the U.S. are very small avocados compared to what we get. The skin is a lot <laughs> thicker, a lot firmer. The skin is rough as well. Um, and when it turns black or very dark blue slash black, it's when it's ripe. Now, what we get locally are some larger avocados. We have one that's called Pollock which is about half the size of an American football. The skin is very, very soft, but it's very, very buttery in taste and texture. But we don't grow them commercially. We don't really have avocado farms here. There are people with some avocado trees who may sell, but it's not really done on a commercial scale. And we import a lot of avocados from the Dominican Republic, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. So we don't get that variety here, but for a lot of locals who travel into the u.s that's what we see and it's always odd to see it because it's so different <laughs> now i read that when Haas was first launched people didn't like it because a black skin they thought it was rotten is that true that is yeah. true they the, the number one variety in california when uh, uh Haas was first introduced with fuerte and fuerte is a lovely avocado as well very buttery very nutty but the fruit stays green, and uh, it was it was planted. It was a seed that was planted around 1926. It was patented in around 1936, and and then in 1946 there was an article written in the California Avocado Society yearbook, and they're writing about how wonderful this new variety has is, except for the fact that it 
it, it turns black when it ripens and that at that time was equated to the fruit being rotten and um yeah it, you know it never became the leading variety in california until the 1970s but i'll let eric say some more things i can see he yeah. has something to say well yeah no um i mean the other thing and this actually is is something that mary lee knows really well is that uh the thing about Hass um, is that it travels in stores and ships really well. You know, that sort of black, lumpy skin helps protect it a little bit from bruising and, and, and getting punctured that some of the thinner skin varieties would get. So, I mean, from that perspective, it is different than something that someone might grow in their backyard because, you know, it, it, it has that ability to travel. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's there's a, there's a lot of different kinds of avocados. So I mean, you know, I, I've heard that before. We have like Brazilian students that visit, and, and they have the same kind of avocados that you have in the Caribbean. So they're always surprised to see this small black fruit. Um, but you know, the 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 sort of buttery texture. One of the other things is that those Caribbean avocados, like the Pollock and and others. Uh, they don't grow well in California and in certain kind of climates, like the more Mediterranean climate, maybe a drier climate. And so I've, I've had some fruit in, in places like South Africa that's obviously got some West Indian genetics in it. Amazing fruit, tastes great, but it doesn't grow as well in California where we have maybe these colder nights, perhaps a drier climate. And so the Hass, the Luna, and some of these other varieties are adapted for those kind of climates. Um, but yeah, you know, I think that, that locally you're going to find avocados that taste absolutely delicious. And, um, I encourage people to grow those as well. Avocados in the U S that you get from the U S I know some come from Mexico as well. Is, is California the main area that grows them? In, in the United yeah. States, California is the main avocado grower, but <clears throat> Mexico now accounts for, I believe over 80% of all the mm. avocados sold in the United States now is coming from Mexico. Yeah. And then we are also importing fruit from Peru and from Colombia. Now they're all halves. But uh, but in California and we also uh, bring a small amount of fruit in from Chile and um New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And um but the California grower now we account for about 20 to 25% of all the fruit volume sold in the United States and ironically when I was hired back a, a long time ago. Uh, most of the avocados in, from California were marketed west of the Rockies or west of the Mississippi. And slowly over time, they penetrated the entire United States. But with the advent of all these imports, the California grower's fruit is now back to be on the western side of the Rockies. So, you know, the, the western third of the of the u.s is where most of our fruit is marketed now it it also used to be that you know the california market was longer because you would have the fruit start ripening in the south first and then finish in the north but as the imports have come in that that window is narrowed so it's it's mostly i'd say a spring fruit here now yeah it's a good thing because we're marketing fruit that are actually at optimum fruit maturity. Mm-hmm. Before, when the US, California had the market basically to themselves, they sort of stretched the limits. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the problem with, um, 
I, I see with a lot of industries when I travel around the world, they try to get to the fruit too early to the market or there's a lot of money to be made at the end of the season so people hold the fruit longer than they should. And then you're putting substandard fruit on the market. And that's another good thing about Luna is that the season is a little different, a little later than Hass. So ideally, it'd be nice to have things that are earlier than Hass and later so you can cover a larger season. All right. So we got to jump into a quick commercial break. But when we get back, I want to drop into the specifics of the Luna UCR and why this is uh, a better variety or an improvement than what we have there. So stay tuned. We'll be back shortly. Experience the extra in your case. Extra care body, extra care face, extra care hair, extra care spa. Attention farmers, agripreneurs, innovators, and entrepreneurs. Are you ready to revolutionize your agricultural business? Look no further than Kariri, where innovation meets cultivation. Kariri can assist you in getting your product on grocery shelves, from conducting the necessary tests and developing sustainable practices, to offering expert guidance and cultivating your business acumen. We provide tailored support to ensure your success in the market. Visit our website at www www.kariri.com or call us at 299-0210 to find out how we can guide you on your journey of growth and success. Are you ready to transform your body, boost your energy, and conquer your fitness goals? Look no further. The Dial Fitness is here to take your workout to the next level. Our state-of-the-art facilities are equipped with the latest technology from cutting-edge cardio machine to top-notch strength training equipment. We've got you covered. Sweat it out with the Dial Fitness Club. Long Circular Mall, One Woodward Place, and Arima. Follow on Facebook and Instagram for updates on classes or call 236-5426 today. You're tuned into the all-new Freedom 106.5. 106.5. Welcome back, TNT. 18 minutes after the hour of 10 o'clock. And we're going back into agribusiness innovations with Jody White and his guests. Thank you. So let's get to the specifics. Luna UCR BL516. That's, that's the that's term. The that name, yeah. Why is that a superior variety to the others that exist right now? You want to answer that one, Derek? I'll start. And I mean, there's plenty to say, so I'm sure you'll finish. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, the tree characteristics are, are really outstanding. It's, it's a smaller, more narrow, upright tree, so you can fit them into a denser planting. Um, the fruit's born more on the inside of the tree. Like Hass isn't too bad, but some of the fruit is kind of on the outside, so it is more susceptible to sunburn or, or wind scarring. Um, so the trees, the, it bears the fruit inside that's protected. Uh, it's a good consistent yield. Um, like I said, a smaller tree. A big thing is that it is a complementary flower type. So there's two flower types, an avocado, an A flower type, and a B flower type. Generally, that's how it's understood. And, and if you have a mix of the two together, they increase each other's yield, uh, cross-pollination. And so it complements a Hass or uh, other A-type varieties like a Gem, which was a release about 20 years ago, Lamb Hass, another California release. So it fits into that really well. And maybe Mary Lou can talk about the fruit 
uh, it's very similar to Hass, but it has some nice characteristics as well. Yeah, the the fruit is uh, it's a later maturing fruit, where Hass is it, it, you can legally pick it here in California starting now, and uh, it reaches optimal maturity probably in May, May, depending on where you are in California, May to June. The Luna, on the other hand, you probably would not want to pick it here in California until like April or May. And it hangs on the tree probably uh, a, a little bit better than half. So that that is uh, a great thing that it, it would extend that season on the end of the summer. And we, we don't know for sure how long, how much later than half, but the half season in California, depending on where you are, really ends in uh, August. And we think that the Luna, you can hold the fruit on probably until September maybe. The, the other thing that I think that is really important is the first one that we've tested recently that when you do storage tests, it stores equally as well as Hass. And uh, Hass sets a, a very high standard internationally. As Eric said, it ships very well. It, it's not without problems, but it ships very well. And our goal has been to, is to find new varieties that can be equal or better than uh, halves. And uh, this one definitely meets that standard. So that one is really good for people who are growing fruit and they want to ship it internationally. It has a good potential that it should be able to make that three or four week boat trip from wherever it's being grown into uh, the United States or to into the European market or into the Pacific Rim market. What kind of climates could this variety be grown in? Uh, could it be grown in, in the Caribbean climate or where you think is best? Great question. Uh, if there's a university out there in the Car Caribbean that we it, would like to try it, we'd be happy to work with it. We don't know. We don't know how it will uh, go grow in the Caribbean. Um, it grows well in California. Um, South they Africa. Have South Africa, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. They have trees, and so it grows very well in those climates, but obviously that's not the Caribbean. Um, we are going to have a test agreement soon with the University of Florida to grow some of them in Florida, but that'll be in northern Florida around Gainesville and Lake Alfred, which is north of Orlando. But the Caribbean, if there was a university or um, within the Caribbean who would want to test it, we'd be more than happy to work with them. Because well, I, I honestly don't know. I'll say right now that after this show, I will get uh, some entities that are through the Caribbean to work with you to have these tested in a couple different islands here. I can oh. make that happen. So I'll be in contact afterwards because that's something that's exciting. Yeah, well, that's great. We have other varieties that also might do what we have an older variety that was released in 2003 that seems to do well in more tropical type climates. The harvest. The harvest, yeah. And it hasn't gone anywhere in California because it really doesn't perform here. Mm -hmm. Tosca, I'm going to tell a, a true Trinidadian story to our guests. So, so sometimes, okay, we leave our beautiful avocados on the trees, waiting them to be to ripe at the exact time when they're the largest and the sweetest and the perfect mm -hmm. and you may leave them for a few weeks and then you come back and you realize 
somebody passed and took your avocado and it's no longer there. Yeah, somebody <laughs> liked the avocados more than we did. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it, uh, I understand that one. I understand that one. My, when I was growing up, we had a, a house and a bacon tree. And people were always taking the house fruit off the tree when they walked by because it was right along the fence. But they never <laughs> took the bacon variety. <laughs> they knew. <laughs> bacon variety? A bacon. Yeah. There's a variety oh. called bacon. Okay. And it's a little bit insipid. It's all right. If you have nothing else to eat, it's all right. It's, it's not called bacon because of the food. It's called bacon because of someone's last name. So, okay. yeah. I, I, so I'm glad for that clarification. You said something before. You said wind scarring. Mm-hmm. Wind. What, what is wind scarring on an avocado? It's like a scuffing. Mm-hmm. It'll, it depends on during the fruit development when it occurs, but it'll be like a scuffing. Okay. On the fruit. Yeah. So, I mean, we see it at the field station in our tall, at the top of the taller trees where the windbreak doesn't protect them. Because in California, we have these um, these seasonal winds called Santa Ana's that come usually in the fall and they're dry and they move the fruit around. And you'll see it like, it'll be like some black brown kind of scarring on the side of the, fr- the green fruit on the tree. And, you know, like lateral where it rubs against the trunk or another fruit. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's it's just, it's not, a, it doesn't look good. Um, you, you wouldn't get a good price selling it. And, uh, I mean, I think if you just have it at home, it's it's fine. But it's, um, it's, it's a damage, you know, that we see. Now, you mentioned patenting varieties. One of the things that always confused me is that how uh, how is the enforcing of patenting a variety works? Like, can't somebody just take a, a, a seed and then plant it? How do you, how does that happen? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. You want to try? You want to try to answer that? I'll, I'll start. So, I mean, the patent is a patent. The U.S. patent is enforced within the United States. So, there's separate agreements internationally. Um, like I think it's the PBR plant breeder rights is, I think it's an EU thing. We file different ones as a UPOV under the USDA, which kind of is more of an international agreement. But I mean, the long and the short of it is that, you know, planting the seed of a patented variety in avocado doesn't really convey any benefits. It's not the actual it's not the material because it's only 50% of the parent. So, I mean, the patent would more likely cover or, or protection would more likely cover if someone took budwood and grafted it clonally without permission. Um, but it, it's a complicated question and it's something I think that, you know, you'd, you'd want to ask an expert in the field because my understanding is, you know, under patent law, once you've sold the tree itself, then that person is free to use it for things. So there's licensing. If you license it, then it's still protected, but it's not sold. It, it, it's 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 a side of agriculture I don't know as much about. Um, you know, I I I um I was the first person to actually commercialize the process of making macaroni from from cassava or yuca. 
mm. or, or making macaroni from sweet potatoes. I was the first person to actually create that process and launch it. And I wasn't able to get protection for it um, in patenting it. So that, that that's why my question was there. That's that's a process patent, which is yeah. different than a plant patent. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you can't patent planting a seed. That's a process that everybody does. So, um, you know, yeah, the, there's different kinds of patents and, and yeah, I, I'm not sure why you had issues with that, but the, the, it, it, took, it took us a while to get the patent. It took us a long through. time. It was a long the, time. The key with the plant patent or with establishing the plant breeders' rights is that you have to demonstrate within reason that you have something unique. Yeah. So like when we were patenting, the patent inspector came back and said, well, you know, prove to us this is different than lamb has or gem, mm. which the university also released. So we had mm. to go into greater description about how the Luna differed from those two varieties. Yeah. And, uh, so it, it's a long, drawn-out, expensive process. You yes. have to have a, a, an individual can patent things in the United States, but I've been told it's very difficult that most people get a lawyer. So then all of a sudden, you know, you can hear the cash or just your ching-ka-ching. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, so it's 10.30. We have to jump to our second commercial break. But when we get back, I, I'm curious to find out the exact process of creating a new variety. Does it come through a lab or is it in the field? So we're going to get into that when we come back. The best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all-new Talk Radio Freedom 106.5. Kariri revolutionizes your agricultural business. Call Kariri at 299-0210 or visit www.kariri.com to find out how they can assist you with getting your products on the grocery shelves. And we're back to Jody White and Agribusiness Innovations. Thank you. So, of course, thank you to our sponsors, Kariri. Uh, if you're looking to launch something new, definitely speak with Kariri. They have a wide range of services that can help you excel with your project. Now, the University of California, Riverside, has a lovely article on this new variety, Luna UCR, and it shows you photos as well stemming from to the other varieties which are led to the Luna UCR. So my question is, how are new varieties created? With a lot of work. It takes a <laughs> lot of time. <laughs> a lot of time and a lot of work. But basically, avocados are not very easy um, because they have a low uh, percentage of, first of all, they, they don't set fruit they, you know they produce a lot of flowers but when you look at how many flowers are on the tree in proportion to the amount of fruit you get it's relatively low that's number one and then number two when you plant out all that seed that you collect there's a very low percentage of the that fruit that is even good to eat so the very first screening thing that you do is that you take the fruit and you're trying to guess well, it's just an early season, mid season, or late season variety. And you sort of go by visual cues and um, you go and you collect it. And Eric 
is an expert at this. I'm not so much, but you go and collect it and you try to ripen it and you eat it. And if you do it multiple times and it's horrible, it's out. <laughs> and the vast majority of the fruit, like 99% of the seeds you plant, they're out. They may have really interesting characteristics as a tree, but the bottom line is you have to sell the fruit. So. Yeah. We're doing that right now, actually. We have, a, it's called a mapping population. So basically you've taken two parents that you know, actually one of them is Luna and another's Gem, and you cross them and you planted out the seedlings. Um, and then you evaluate them for different traits, try to see if you can find which parent contributes a dark skin fruit versus a green skin fruit or whatever. And so, um, yeah, it's difficult because every time you plant out a new seedling, you don't know anything about the tree. There's a lot of variation. You know, some trees have a red colored flush. Some have a green colored flush. They can be a little hairy. The fruit can be large, big, or small, early, late, different skin textures. So you kind of have to look. And if there's only one or two fruit on that seedling tree, you have to plan, well, maybe I should pick it in February or well, I only have two fruit. I'll pick one in February and one in June and see if either one of those is good. Um, so you have to do a lot of these sort of, I mean, evaluations or sort of pre-evaluations. But basically, I mean, we plant out. It's, it's a field procedure. You know, we, we select parents that we think would be good. Um, as Mary Lou said, the flower to, to fruit ratio is really low, so you can't really do intentional crosses easily. You know, you can't take a paintbrush and get pollen off of one and move it to another like you would with an apple or a peach. Uh, you have to take two parents and sort of net them up with bees or put them far away so the bees do all the work of crossing. Because if you did it by hand, you just wouldn't, it's not efficient. So... You're limited in that way, but then you plan out thousands of seeds a year, ideally, and the um, the variation is such that you probably are only going to get one to two percent of those that are worth keeping, and then you keep looking at those for other traits, and eventually maybe some of those will make it into a final release, and it takes at least fifteen to twenty years from seed. So that's what I'm going to ask: How long does an avocado tree? from planting take to give you a fruit? Well, it depends, but it's, I mean, in our case, the precocity is pretty good. Um, you know, I've talked to some other people and apparently it takes their, their germplasm, their trees longer. But for us, we are very aggressive because it takes time and space. So we would plant them out and they would have between five to six years in the ground for us to get some data off of them. So if they haven't produced fruit within five to six years, well, we need that field for something else. We're going to look at some other fruit and then we'll replant it. So. Yeah. So we're selecting, we're selecting, you know, so you, 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 you identify this one individual out of a thousand or two individuals out of a thousand that you say, Oh, this has some promise we think. And so then you take budwood from those trees and you graft it to maybe 10, 15 trees um, on, uh, on an own rootstock. And then you watch that for like four or five years to see, well, okay, now that it's actually on a commercial rootstock, because everything's grown on commercial rootstocks, uh, how does it do? 
and does it really show promise or not? And a lot of stuff falls out at that stage. And then once you find, after you go through four or five years of that, then you, you say, okay, now I have one or two, again, that look reasonable, that look promising, and I'm going to put it into uh, more large-scale trials. For instance, we put out uh, some trials in, starting in 20, uh, 2011 through 2015. We thought we had eight selections that looked really good, but now that we have them in the wider uh, selection in different fields, we've dropped two of them because one has a wonderful fruit. The tree has a wonderful tree shape, but it's just not productive. You know, I mean, I guess it's a backyard tree. It would be fine. But if you want to grow commercially, there's just no way that you're going to make money off of that one. And then we have another one that is very, very productive. And it's a nice tree as well, but when you grow it in a really hot climate, it develops an internal defect that you can't eat the fruit. So obviously that one's out. So you so never know what you're going to find. This is such a long process. You're telling me decades, pretty much. I read that this was over 50 years in the making to get to this point. Yeah, it's generational. So before... Uh, the, uh, we trace all our activity back to uh, Bob Berg, who was hired by UC Riverside in 19, uh, in the mid-1950s. But before he came, they went through a couple people that uh, were breeders for very short periods of time. And I know one of one of them was a professor at UC at Davis when I was a student. He, I remember when I got the job at Riverside, he goes, oh, you're going to work on avocados. Miserable crop because he was a breeder. And he couldn't get anything. He went on to be uh, be a strawberry breeder. But uh, it's really true. You have to have a lot of patience, and you have to be doing other things to get your publications so you can get tenure. Because on releasing varieties, it's a generational thing. This variety, the Luna, uh, originated under Dr. Bob Berg, who retired in 1991, and his technician, uh, Gray Martin. And then... Uh, Ber, uh, Dr. Berg retired in the early 90s, and, and uh, Mr. Martin left the university in uh, the late 90s. And I inherit, I took over the program in 1996. So I inherited the Luna, but we didn't know hardly anything about it, except that it had a nice fruit and had a nice growth structure. So we, we evaluated it in a little... Um, we could have probably done it a little bit faster, but it wasn't the main focus of our program at the time. But over the years, we saw that you know this thing really had potential. And starting about 10 years ago, we really started pushing it and trying to get it released. So it's essentially, it's it's a body of research that everybody keeps building on and keeps keeps mm -hmm. you know adding to to see what happens. Oh, definitely, yeah. you know. And Eric yeah. will take over from me, and someone hopefully will take over from him someday. Yeah. So yeah, how far no. are we from 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 this being at our supermarket shelves? Luna, uh, well, probably three to five years. Mm. Probably we have. Um, um, there's a lot of interest in it in California, and our the commercial licensing. Uh, company, the Eurosimias, which is a Spanish-based company. They are the international licensee for the variety. They have they are now having partners around the world that are going to start growing it. So 
they're a little bit behind California, but I think in California we'll probably we could have a small amount of fruit in the commercial market in three to five years. Mm-hmm. When when I get a luna in my hand, a luna in one hand and, and a has in the other, am mm-hmm. I going to know the difference really between the two? Is the average person going to be able to tell, or or, or is it? Good question. Um, that's a great question. I think it's not as pebbly as Hass. It's a little bit neckier than Hass. Uh, it has a small indentation at the base of the fruit. Mm-hmm. But if you if you didn't know to look for those things, you're not going to go. I, I don't. It, it turns black when it ripens. So. Yeah. So that, that, that it's, that's it's a little more pear shaped too. It's a that turning black has gone from a problem when that was first launched to being something people look for. Right. And that has to do with the marketing campaign in the 1980s from the California Avocado Commission. In the early late 1970s and early 1980s is when there was a big push. We had all this acreage planted in California and didn't really have a market for it. And there had been work done at the University of California and at UCLA, actually, many, many years prior to that, that showed that you could ripen avocados with ethylene gas, like you ripen bananas. And there were some forward-looking people in the industry who said, you know, maybe this is the way, because people buy these green hard avocados on the market. They don't know what to do with them. So they started promoting selling ripe fruit. And so I remember one of them is, you know, uh, it's ripe when it's black. That was a big marketing campaign. So people began to think in the marketplace, okay, if I want to eat an avocado and I see it, it's going to be black, it's going to be ready to eat. And so, yeah. you know, the U.S. consumer in particular has really been trained that they want black fruit. And yeah, and now we get kickback. I get, we do informal taste panels with our varieties and people go, oh, you know, I don't like a green fruit. I go, well, why don't you like a green fruit? Because it needs to be black. Well, you know. <laughs> no, yeah. We actually have some very good tasting green fruit. I mean, some of our own programs and then in California, there's good tasting green fruit like reed and other varieties. But, you know, people are so used to dark skin fruit that you know if i have one of those varieties and i'm i leave it out in the in the building in the in the lobby for people to take home i have to tell people or put a sign on it you know that says these will be ready when they're green you know so don't wait until they're rotten to eat them you know because that's <laughs> what people think uh, because of varieties though some of them do turn color slightly but mm. many of the ones we get really do turn color. And you get people going to the supermarket and having to squeeze it, squeeze mm. it, squeeze right. it. Until the, and when everybody squeezes this fruit, a hundred people pass and squeeze this fruit. You know, it's oh, damaging and then, and then it's a disaster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah and, I mean, that happens here too. And a lot of times, because they would pick some of these items from the other countries very often by the time they come here in a week or two, by the time they ripen, they don't really last very long or they start to spoil before they actually get ripe and you can eat them. Mm-hmm. So I- I'd say locally, avocados are not easily available to the general population here because of that. You get some on the fresh market that you get from a neighbor's tree. That is the good ones, but the ones that you get in supermarkets that are imported tend to be a little bit iffy. It's a hit and miss. They buy five, two good, three spoil. Yeah, do, I mean, do you find this is a question actually for Jody? Do you find that it's mostly one season that you're going to get your neighbor's fruit, or does your island in, in Trinidad or Tobago does it have a 
a long season where it's year round or no it's it's usually one season okay. uh just just like maybe three months out of the year you tend to get a lot of avocados coming mm-hmm. i believe and after that you don't get as many you might get a couple but there's usually a short season for local avocados that we mm-hmm. tend to get because we have two seasons here uh wet and dry more or less right um the months are kind of shifting for them but it's limited yeah, you know, avocados actually are very difficult to handle post-harvest because they're very sensitive to how you, uh, it's important to maintain a cold chain. And so if the fruit are picked and not um, cooled properly, they'll begin to soften prematurely. Um, if they're grown in an area where you have a lot of rain and they don't do a, a good job on disease management, you can get a lot of fruit rots. Um you know, when they're transported from where they're produced to where you are, and then they're not handled correctly when they're offloaded in in your country, that, you know, it's, I've seen, does that, I've seen fruit, like, for instance, from Chile, and the fruit is unbelievable. You go, this is some of the best avocados I've ever eaten. And, I, and we did an experiment where we followed the same lots into the United States. And they're not the same fruit. They're not the same fruit. And um, it, 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 there's a lot of mishandling that occurs. So there's a, a, a thought that, you know, because these are hard, we can throw them around like baseballs, but they're really not like baseballs. They're, they're more no. tender, especially the green skin ones, which are very tender, ten, and they'll show the bruising. <laughs> okay, so it's just about quality level. I have one more commercial break to get to. And when we come back, I just want to ask a couple of questions about the, the the culture of research at the University of California because I see a lot of things coming out of there. So stand by, we'll be back shortly. The best insight, instant feedback, accountability, the all new Talk Radio Freedom 106.5. Welcome back to Agribusiness Innovations with Jody White and his panel. I have a quick question from the WhatsApp board, Jody, if you don't mind. Sure. The question is, what causes brown threads in the flesh of avocados? Is this present in Luna, the Luna brand? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, the brown threads, I always look at whether, if the brown threads are coming from the top of the fruit, or they look like they're originating from the bottom of the fruit. If they're coming from the top of the fruit, most of the time the fruit has a, some kind of stem end rot, decay, so when Luna is just like any other avocado, if it um, is infected with some kind of decay organism, it can get those brown threads from the top of the fruit. When you see them emanating from the base of the fruit, that's sort of varietal dependent. Some varieties tend to brown a lot more than others. And Luna is not one of those that browns physiologically very much. So it, depend, it depends on uh, the source, of, the cause of it. Yeah, just add in actually that like in our germplasm field, there was a, an early variety that I hadn't really tried before. And uh, the fruit was okay. It was a very white colored flesh, very early fruit, but it had those strings. And that is something that we look for in selecting fruit um, because some fruit just tend to have more strings and more fiber visible or otherwise in, in, the, in the flesh. And, and Luna is not one of those we we would select against that it it sounds like you have to eat a lot of avocados as part of your research 
we we have. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's similar to when you see people like wine tasters having to taste different types of wines. And, you Mm. know, you you have to literally eat every single variety and taste it and feel. And so you you become the experts in it. I want to ask, University of California, there's a lot of research that comes out of there, a lot of work that happens that looks very exciting. What is it? What is the culture like in the University of, of California, Riverside, with respect to innovation? Well, in a, uh, you know, it's a education and research is the main missions of the University of California Riverside campus as well. And so research and education go together and you um, you're educating the future scientists and members of society at the university and a key of that a key of that is to promote innovative thinking Mm -hmm. and so that drives innovative research because you have your goal is to stimulate students whether they're undergraduate or graduate students to think out of the box so that they can you know ideally in an ideal world they contribute to society one of the problems that we face here locally is that being a Caribbean island, we find that a lot of kids moved away from agriculture. We became an oil and gas economy. People moved into there because it was a lot more lucrative. And parents who were farmers or grandparents who were farmers wanted their kids to not have as hard a life and encourage them out of the fields. Do you find that more and more younger kids are coming interested in the agricultural field? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, yeah. on average, a very low percentage of the U.S. population is engaged in agriculture. Mm-hmm. It, and um, I mean, I, I, I'll just jump in and Mary Lou can finish. But I mean, I would say that when it comes to the grad students coming in and undergraduates as well, there is an interest in agriculture from the scientific perspective. Um, if it's taught correctly, you know, by a professor or class, you know, it becomes relevant. Um, but having said that, you know, it's not usual for a young person or a younger person, certainly than me, to get into being, say, a farm manager or a farmer. Uh, you have to really, it seems you have to really want to do it, you know. Um, but, I mean... There, there are young people getting involved, and that is exciting. But, yeah, I mean, it used to be when I was young, the young guy, that it seemed like everybody else was uh, quite a bit older and that they were retiring out, and I guess now I'm in that group, but uh, I start somewhere. Yeah, yeah I, I, I guess here, too, is, they, they want to get into the research side. They like the technology. They like hydroponics, indoor farming, but not necessarily getting into the open fields. Mm. Well, you know, it costs a lot of money to be a farmer, too. I mean, you're taking a lot of risk. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are risk-averse, too. I mean, I know growers up... I live up in the San Joaquin Valley, and I know growers up here that say, you know, I don't know why I'm a farmer, but I just like, you know, I guess I'm a gambler. You know, because one year you'll have a good year, and the next year you won't. Or maybe you have two or three years which is not so good, or two or three years where you can make a good return it's very risky because you're at the whims of nature too you know you you say you you can generalize about the environment but as we know 
you can't predict the weather and you can have a, a, a weather event that destroys everything. Now we're coming to the end of the program. My last question to you is, are there any other crops of interest that you're working on that we can expect to get something launched coming up soon? You want to go first, Eric? I mean, I, I work almost exclusively in avocados. I've, I've worked a little bit here and there in citrus. Um, I know Mary Lou does a lot of taste panels with different fruit, and I've, I've helped with that. Um, I mean, here at UCR, we have a, a strong citrus program as well, um, and I see some interesting things there where they're, they're trying to breed uh, HLB and Asian citrus psyllid-resistant citrus fruits and rootstocks, um, so that's that's something, but uh, it's it's not my field. I know they're making progress, but I don't know how, how soon you would see that. Yeah, I mean, that's a worldwide effort. The University of Florida and Brazil, they have huge programs looking for HLB-tolerant citrus because otherwise uh, citrus, as we know it, is very endangered. So, But yeah. I, I work... On the avocado, I mean, on plant improvement, I work on avocados. I, I, I've collaborated with people on citrus and I've collaborated uh, on table grapes and blueberries, but and they're not fruit. my main focus. Kiwi fruit, yes, kiwi fruit too. I have some experience with kiwi fruit. <laughs> all right, thank you so much. Uh, do you have any closing remarks for all listeners? Eat more avocados. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I hope you get to try the Luna sometime soon. And yeah. um, as Mary Lou mentioned earlier, if, if someone in the Caribbean is interested, a research institution or whatever, interested in collaborating with us, that's exciting for us. I, I wouldn't mind visiting. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being Thank here. You. Our guests from the University of California speaking on Luna UCR. Be sure to visit the University of California Riverside's website for lots more information on the variety as well as any advancements that are happening in it. Thank you so much. This has been Agribusiness Innovation here on Freedom 106.5 FM. Tune in next week for another installment of the show. The best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all-new Talk Radio Freedom 106.5.